0: How many of you, uh, like myself, enjoy tackling the daily wordle? Anybody do the daily wordle? I have today's already. If you want to get it right in the first one, you can just give me five bucks and I'll let you get that. I have not yet guessed it on the first take. Uh, I'm trying. But there are some different wordles that people would insert to answer that question. To answer the question, upon what are you basing your answer and some would say this let's go to the couple of screens later uh not that and that one some would say works I'm doing good and I know because I'm doing good then God looks upon me with favor I'm a good person but for you wordle players you know that answer is not the word we're looking for today might be some right letters But not the correct word others might say well i'm basing that today kelly on this next word i'm basing it on on my merits some of you were in a little award program maybe it was the girl scouts or the boy scouts or something where you earned merits you know your badge you had your sash full of badges and and maybe you're thinking if there was a spiritual sash Yours would be full because of all the merits, all the good things that you have done to earn God's favor. But once again, we'll see, that word is not the wordle we're looking for today. But there is a wordle that answers both of those questions. The question, where do you stand in your relationship with God today? And upon what are you basing your answer? And that word is this next word it's grace it's grace grace answers both of those questions where do you stand in your relationship with God today hopefully like me you are standing in his grace and secondly how can I answer that question upon what am I basing that confidence his grace his grace that is sufficient for me and for you and it was grace that Paul was writing about in this letter to the Galatian church. I know we've been in the study for several weeks now, and what I want to do is just go back to each chapter and lift out a key verse that continues to build Paul's argument. Because Paul's gospel message was a message of grace. That we are saved by God's goodness poured out to us through Christ, even though we didn't deserve that. That's what grace is, receiving something we didn't deserve. That we're all saved because of God's grace extended to us through Christ Jesus. That was the gospel he preached. In the region of Galatia where he had ministered, that was his gospel. But after Paul had left, other people came into the church and began to promote a different gospel that wasn't good news at all. And that good news was, yeah, Jesus is good, but it's Jesus and If you really want to be saved, you Gentile people, now Gentiles, which is what the Galatian church was mostly made up of, Gentiles mean anybody who is not a Jew. You have Jews and you have Gentiles, okay? And most of them were Gentiles. Most of those came out of a pagan culture where their lifestyle was very much against the gospel of the good news, but they came to know Jesus because of God's grace and they were saved and then these people came in and seized the opportunity to say, oh, well, if you Gentiles really want to be saved, then you must undergo circumcision if you're a man, and middle schoolers, you are dismissed, you must undergo circumcision if you are a man, and you must begin to obey the Jewish law, because Jesus' grace and law will be enough. That was the message that Paul's confronting. and We see it in his very opening argument, Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. He says, I am shocked that you are turning away so soon from God. Turning away from God? Really? I thought they were just kind of turning toward the law. Well, we'll get to that here in a minute. You're turning away from God, who called you to himself through the loving mercy of Christ. You are following a different way that pretends to be the good news, but is not good news at all. You are being fooled by those who deliberately twist the truth concerning Christ. In the rest of chapter 1, he, he builds his argument for the authenticity of the gospel he preaches. See, what Paul knows about his own experience is once he was saved, once the Lord revealed himself to Paul when he was on his way, remember, to arrest Christians and throw them into prison. He wasn't out doing good. He was being a good Jew, but he wasn't out doing good in in God's eyes. And so God confronts him, and Jesus speaks to him, and commissions Paul, and he is saved. And then we know that there's a time when the Lord himself, through divine revelation, speaks to Paul and reveals to him the good news. And then Paul goes back to Jerusalem years later, and he consults with the Jerusalem leaders, the apostles, like Peter, James, and John the gospel that he has been preaching, and they're like, that's the good news. Keep preaching. In fact, God's called you the Gentiles. You keep preaching to the Gentiles. And so they commission Paul with that gospel message of being saved by the grace of God through faith in Christ Jesus. That's his message. And he goes and he preaches that. And then in chapter 2 of Galatians, he directly confronts the message of the Judaizers with this verse. The Judaizers are the ones who were coming in and saying, Jesus plus, right? 2.16 of Galatians. Yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we've obeyed the law. For no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. That's a pretty clear case he's made in chapter 2. And he goes on in verse 21 of chapter 2, I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless, for if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. So this is a pretty sound argument. He's confronting the Judaizers with the truth of the gospel, which is that we are saved by grace, not by works, not by the law. And in chapter 3, then he shares the story of Abraham, because I'm sure the Jewish people who came into the church, the Judaizers, began to teach the Jewish faith to the Gentiles as well. And part of that would have been the story of Abraham. That if they really want to be saved, they need to become children of Abraham. And the only way a Gentile can become a child of Abraham is by obeying the law and being circumcised if you're a male. I know that's not a very comfortable conversation, but that's what they they said. And so he shares the story of Abraham, and he says, remember, remember, Abraham was justified before God, not because of works and not because of the law, because Abraham is before the law. Abraham was justified before God because he believed God. He believed God's promise that through Abraham, through his seed, that all nations would be blessed. And it says that Abraham believed and God reckoned it as righteousness. So he was made right, not because of the law, not because of working hard. He was made right because he believed God. He believed the promise, even though Abraham didn't deserve it. He didn't deserve to be part of God's salvation story. But Abraham followed God and he believed. And because of that, he was made right with God, which predates the law. So he's he's sharing that story of Abraham. And he goes on to say that, in fact, the law that came after Abraham, that law had a purpose. It was a guardian for the people of Israel until the promised seed would come through Abraham's lineage. We know today that promised seed is Jesus, who came to fulfill the law, die that we might be saved not because of the works of the law, but because of his sacrifice for all mankind. And so he shares that the, po- the law is powerless, really, to save. All it can do is point out what we've done wrong. All, that's, all the law does is tell us what sin is. Galatians chapter 3, verse 31. or Sorry, 21. Is there a conflict, then, between God's law and God's promises? Absolutely not. If the law could give us new life, we could be made right with God by obeying it. But the Scriptures declare that we are all prisoners of sin. So... We receive God's promise of freedom. That same promise, by the way, that was given to Abraham. We receive that promise only by believing in Jesus Christ. And friends, I need to think for a minute about who it is that's so adamantly defending the message of grace. It's Paul. Now let me remind you who Paul was. Paul was a Jew among Jews. He was one of the most zealot Jewish men of the day. He arrested Christians who were basically saying, you don't have to be saved because of the law. You can be saved through Christ Jesus. And he didn't like the message. And he was persecuting Christians and upholding the law. This is the Paul that met Jesus. His life was transformed. He saw that the law was powerless to save him, and he found his Savior, Jesus. He's the very one. If anybody could join the Judaizers, it would be Paul. He'd be a poster child of the Jewish people. But he says, no, friends, don't miss this point. I know the law couldn't save me. It was only Jesus. But Paul lived to the letter of the law and discovered it was powerless. In chapter 4 then, quickly, Paul talks about Abraham again and Abraham's two sons. You might recall the story. We see it in Genesis chapter 16 and Genesis chapter 21. We see the story where Abraham and Sarah were not able to have children. She was barren. But God gave a promise to Abraham that through his seed, all the world would be blessed. But how was that going to happen if Sarah couldn't have children? And years passed and still no child. They had a promise, but they weren't seeing it. So what did they do? They hatched a plan outside of God's promise, outside of God's plan. They made their own plan. And the plan was, Abraham, you and Hagar have this promised child. So through their own human intervention, in their own human wisdom, in their own human ability, they tried to carry out the promise, and it failed. It failed miserably. And then later, Sarah does indeed have the child of promise, Isaac, And so he begins to tell the story about these two children, about the two women, and I'll very quickly just tell you in Galatians chapter 4, verse 24, he says that these two women serve as an example or an illustration or an allegory of God's two covenants. See, even in the Old Testament, there was two covenants. I'll get there in a minute. The first woman, Hagar, represents Mount Sinai where the people received the law that enslaved them. And now Jerusalem, the Jewish people, is just like Mount Sinai in Arabia because she and her children live in slavery to the law. But the other woman, Sarah, represents the heavenly Jerusalem. By the way, the promise. And she is the free woman, and she is our mother. Now, if a Judaizer was in the room, a Jewish man was in the room, when that was being read out of Paul's letter, they would have stormed out of there. Because how dare Paul tell Gentiles that they are children of Abraham? Not by birth, but by promise. They were. Because they believed in Jesus, the seed of Abraham, who would bring them into God's family, not based on their nationality, not based on the law, but on God's grace. And then through that promise given to Abraham, years later, would be ushered in what's called the New Covenant. So in the Old Testament, we had two covenants. We had the covenant of promise given to Abraham, and we had the covenant of the law. Okay. Fast forward, because when Jesus came, the seed of Abraham, he instituted a new covenant. Remember that night? We celebrated every time we have communion. He says, this cup is the New Covenant in my blood. So, We have two covenants. We have a covenant called the New Covenant, and we have a covenant called the Law. The Judaizers said, you need both. But how many know these two spheres, they just, you can't, they don't interact well. They don't play well together. Because they are designed to be two very specific, boundaried spheres. And they don't merge. Paul's point is, friends, these two are not meant to be put together. You're not going to be able to follow Jesus and depend on the law to save you. It's not both. It's not some of each. It is one or the other. Under that new covenant, Jesus died in the place of sinners. He died to fulfill the law and now we're either going to be fully in one or fully in the other but the problem is and we'll talk more about it here (laughs) as we go on there's always a tendency to try to bring these two together the reason the judaizers were so popular is because this seemed like a popular message we get to accept jesus yes but we also get to uphold our tradition the law hooray They were missing the point, and they were jeopardizing the grace message that Paul went out to preach. You see, if we keep thinking it's both, here's the truth. Christ can't save those who persist in saving themselves. Following the path of legalism means leaving the path of grace. These two do not converge. In fact, they lead in two very different directions. Galatians chapter 5, verse 4 tells us that. Paul warns us. For if you are trying to make yourselves right with God by keeping the law, then you have cut yourself off from Christ. That's a pretty strong message. You have fallen away from God's grace. Friends, that's powerful. We need to hear this truth because today we have something like when I try to, to make myself right with God by, and then fill in the blank, whatever that might be. Good works, or going to church, or, or helping the old lady across the road, I mean, whatever it is. And when we say, I when, when I try to make myself right with God by doing, then the reality is, I am cutting myself off from Christ. Because I'm saying, thank you, Jesus, I kind of needed the boost to get me going, but now I'm going to be made right with God through my own performance. And God cannot save those who insist on saving themselves. You see, the new covenant of grace through faith in Christ sets us free from law and sin. Sets us free. We're not under the obligation of sin or the law. It's a covenant of freedom and of grace and of salvation. And here's the truth. The law can't offer you any of those things. The law cannot offer you salvation. The law cannot offer you grace. It certainly cannot offer you freedom. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul goes on. To bridge that story of Abraham and his two wives and his two sons, to say this, So Christ has truly... Set us free. I like the way the NIV translation says it. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. For freedom Christ has set us free. We have freedom from slavery to the old sinful desires and to the well-meaning but unable to save us Jewish law. But that freedom, friends, came at a great price. Not a price you or I could pay. It came at a price. In order for us to enjoy ultimate freedom somebody had to set us free. And that somebody was Jesus Christ. Remember those words on the cross, the three powerful words he spoke before he drew his last breath? He said, it is finished. He wasn't speaking about his life. He was speaking about the work that he came to do. He was saying, in essence, the law that had mastery over you to earn God's favor through performance, it is finished because I am standing here or hanging here as a sacrifice for the imperfect humanity who could not live up to the standard of the law and would not be saved unless a Savior stepped in and fully obeyed the law inside and out of his heart, which Jesus did and then died for us as a man and the of God. So what do we do then? Friends, we need to learn how to rest in the grace of Christ. Not rest as in getting lazy, lackadaisical, or being unproductive, but maybe a better word is to say we need to find that inner peace that says, I am saved, not by works of righteousness that I have done, but by His grace. And I can rest in that grace. However, Paul knows of the human heart so he continues chapter verse 1 of chapter 5 now make sure that you stay free and don't get tied up again in slavery to the law how many of us have to be told to stay free in america the land of the free we love the idea of being free in fact we fight for our freedoms quite loudly today don't we Why would Paul have to tell the Gentile church, stay free? Because he knows. There is a human tendency to drift from spiritual freedom to religious legalism or to bondage to sin. There's a drift that tends to happen because we can't rest in the grace of Christ. No matter what we've experienced, it's our human nature to repeatedly fall into a system of merit and to think in terms of achievement and reward. I just got to do more so God likes me more. And we have this tendency that we battle in that regard. And yet there's also the tendency to return to a life of sin, to indulge in the sinful nature. Why? Because when resting in grace seems hard, which I don't know how resting in grace can be hard, But there's this human thing inside of us that doesn't allow us to rest in that grace, and we become restless. And when we do that, it's like, well, I got to do more now for God. I got to do things to earn his favor. And maybe that's because you grew up in an environment where you were only appreciated, you were only seen, you were only loved when you did something. And so you feel like you got to do something to earn God's favor. And maybe it's because. You, that tendency is pulling you that way. For others, you couldn't rest in that grace. So you went back to the sinful nature and began to live according to the flesh. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, Paul tells them, For you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters. But don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. For the whole law can be summed up in this one command love your neighbor as yourself. You see, spiritual freedom is a great privilege, but it also requires great responsibility. I know it sounds like a line from a Spider Man movie, but just track with me here. Spiritual freedom is great privilege. But it also requires great responsibility. Why? Because in that passage, Paul tells us there are two ways that our freedom can be leveraged or our freedom can be used. Our freedom given to us in God can be leveraged irresponsibly to satisfy the lust of our flesh. The problem with that is that freedom's not going to last very long. Because once I return to the desires of the flesh, I become captive once again to my sinful nature. It's not freedom. He says, or you can leverage your freedom, love your neighbor as to serve one another in love. In fact, loving others sums up the entire law. Because if I truly loved my neighbor as myself, than the things that the law speaks of in regard to interpersonal relationships, I wouldn't violate because of the moral law in my heart to love them. So that's what he's saying. It's all summed up. But we're responsible to steward appropriately the freedom that we have in Christ wisely, to leverage it in a way that honors God and reflects Christ's likeness and loves others, and it requires responsibility because we can misuse it because we can drift from it. In fact, drift happens when we lose focus on the spiritual freedom that we have in Christ. Some of you uh, drivers of vehicles know what happens when drift occurs. Perhaps you uh, have seen somebody. I've seen a few drivers. I commute now daily between Albany and Salem. And I have seen drivers full-on reading a at least 600-page book propped up on their steering wheel while they were driving on the interstate, drifting in and out of their lane as they turned pages. I have observed a lady applying makeup on Interstate 5 with her review mirror cocked her direction and her car weaving in and out of her lane. I watched a gentleman enjoy a rather delicious-looking egg sandwich of some sort, in his vehicle, and when he reached down for his hash browns, his car drifted into the other lane. We've all probably as drivers have experienced a form of drift. Drift happens when we lose focus. And it's sometimes very insignificant, simple things that detract us away from our focus, like a cheeseburger, or makeup, or a book, or a child in the back seat, which, this yes, they're important, but... Not as important as maintaining your lane. Or a lot of us get distracted by this thing. And we drift. The truth is, no matter what that thing is, cheeseburger or cell phone, we would all agree that it is not as important in that moment as maintaining your lane and staying focused. I mean, you would never, if, if you found yourself Unfortunately, in an accident, and ended up telling the investigating officer who came to the scene, yes, officer, I sideswiped that car because this cheeseburger was really good and it needed a French fry in that very moment and I couldn't control both. I mean, does that become a justifiable reason? No. Usually we make up some kind of other story, right? Because it can't be the cheeseburger and the French fry. It can't be the cell phone. But often... It's those little insignificant and, and we would say that when it comes to drifting from our spiritual freedoms into the sin or into the law, those are certainly not worth losing our focus. It's not worth the drift that happens. You see, and, and the reality is we all wish we had those, you know those little warning strips they now put on the roads. Many of you have tested them to make sure they work. Uh you're driving, and the next thing you know, and then you, you adjust and kind of recorrect, and it's like, okay, thank you. I'm glad those are there to wake us up or to get our attention back where it needs to be, but don't you wish that when it came to navigating our spiritual life, we had those on each side? And when I was trending too much to becoming legalist, you know, I would hear a warning that says, hey, you're getting off the lane. Focus on the grace and the freedom you have in Christ. Or when I begin to drift the other way. Sin or the law, either side. Don't you wish there was something that did that? And the, and the answer is, well, there kind of sort of is. It's not bumps in the road. Paul tells us. It's the Holy Spirit. Let's look what he says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. So I say. So this means I'm tying up a point here. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you're not free to carry out your good intentions. But when you are directed by the Spirit, You're not under the obligation to the law of Moses. Interesting, in that one passage, the Holy Spirit helps us to steer clear of legalism, that's how he ends it, but also of hedonism, which means giving into the lust of our flesh. That passage says the Holy Spirit is our warning system that will keep us. Now, how many of you have one of those modern fancy cars? I don't, but it has this feature now that when the car senses you are leaving your lane... It corrects, or it makes an annoying sound. And the most you turn that feature off because it's super annoying, right? The Holy Spirit is like that internal nudge to correct ourselves. Because the Holy Spirit is within us. The Holy Spirit will guide us into true spiritual freedom in Christ. The Holy Spirit, though, friends, let me just quickly say this. The Holy Spirit is not a force like Star Wars. Use the force, Luke. It's not a force that we somehow mystically tap into like it's some universal power. The Holy Spirit, too, is not a ghost. I know we used to call it the Holy Ghost, but it's not a ghost. The Holy Spirit, by the way, is not Jiminy Cricket, who's in your back to whisper to the voice or into the ear of a little pinocchio when he's going the wrong direction the holy spirit and the holy spirit is the third person of what we call the holy trinity god the father god the son god the holy spirit and the holy spirit has personal relational characteristics so when you look at the work of the holy spirit throughout scripture the holy spirit speaks the holy spirit teaches The Holy Spirit advocates, the Holy Spirit acts in our life. The Holy Spirit directs us and guides us. In fact, Jesus in John chapter 14, before he's about to leave his disciples, he says these words, John 14, 16, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate. So like I was, another advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive Him because it's not looking for Him and doesn't recognize Him. But you know Him because He lives with you now and will be in you. The Holy Spirit within us, friends, is better than Jesus beside us. You've heard me say those words before, and I mean it. Jesus said, I'm going to leave you. And I would like Jesus beside me. I think that would be pretty cool. But He, in essence, was saying the Holy Spirit coming to be in you is better than me beside you because the Holy Spirit is a relational person who will guide you into truth, who will remind you of the things that I have taught you, who will be a constant paraclete, a helper called alongside to help you navigate through your Christian life. John 14, 26. But when the Father sends the Advocate, again, the Holy Spirit, as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit, He will teach you everything and will remind you of everything I have told you. John 15, 26, But I will send you the Advocate, the Spirit of truth. And He will come to you from the Father and will testify about me. So He says, let the Holy Spirit guide you. Well, how do we do that? we come back to remember the Holy Spirit is personal, relational. That means every day the Holy Spirit is at work in your life. But do you pay attention to it? Imagine for a moment if the only time my wife and I interacted was when we first dated and on our wedding day, and that was it. What kind of relationship would we have with each other? Just because we had a first moment we met and we had a ceremony but we never did anything else together? What would that be like, right? Nobody thinks to do that because we are wired for relationship. But yet when it comes to the Holy Spirit, we, we basically do that. We say, thank you for salvation. Thank you for that wonderful moment and now see ya. I'm going to live now without your help and leadership. We may not intentionally say that, but when was the last time you paid attention to the work of the Holy Spirit within you? Correcting you, teaching you, leading you. The Holy Spirit wants to do that. The Holy Spirit is relational. But I have to yield to and be open to and be a part of that relationship. We cannot live the Christian life of freedom without the Holy Spirit. It needs to be a daily focus, friends. And it's not hard. I just go like, my morning routine looks like this. I, I, I go over to the and get a cup of coffee. Because that's, you know, we do that. And I sit down and I read my passage for the day from my, my reading plan of the Bible. I currently use the YouVersion Bible app to do that and it keeps me on track. And I pray a reordering prayer that basically says, Holy Spirit, you are the authority in and over my life today. Help me to listen for your voice today. Help me to feel your nudging when I'm being stubborn. Help me to pay attention to the warning when I'm moving toward a a border of the sinful nature or the law. You get the idea. I just take a moment to recognize the work of the Spirit within me. When Paul says to live by the Spirit, what he means is keep on keeping on walking with the Spirit. It's a daily thing. A lot of us don't approach that, and there's not enough time in today's message to continue to to flesh that out more. But the reality is we need to start by paying attention that the Holy Spirit is with us and will speak to us and guide us. Why? Because when you are saved, the Holy Spirit takes residence in you. And then the Holy Spirit helps you to live a victorious life for Christ. Paul goes on to explain in Galatians. He says, we all know, this is Galatians 5, 19, when you follow the desires of the sinful nature, the results are very clear. And we don't have to read the list because we would look at that list and go, well, yeah, that's definitely the result of living according to the flesh. And the Gentiles would go, yep, been there, done that, because... Came from a pagan culture where that was the culture of the day. He says, So you all know what that looks like. But let me tell you, he wraps up by saying this anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. So if you find yourself more in those terms, you're in dangerous territory. We cannot live in spiritual freedom and Follow the desires of the sinful nature. Again, I have a new covenant and I have here uh, one called sin. Same principle applies, friends. If we are new covenant believers forgiven and living for Christ Jesus, then we dare not try to continue blending in a life of sin because it does not intend to be that way. We have been crucified with Christ Therefore, we no longer live. The life I live in the body now, I live to honor Christ and the new covenant he came to give. So he talks about the fact that there is a work of the flesh and he lists it and you cannot be both. And there are believers today. Believe it or not, this is when we try to blend these two together and live with our feet in both worlds. This is the hypocrisy that has hurt the church and continues to hurt the church. But it's also the tension, friends, that we feel in our culture today. Because we look at that list of the flesh and we look at our culture and we feel the tension. But let me remind you very loudly, sinners and our secular culture, they are not the enemy. They are not the enemy. If Paul believed that Gentile sinners and that culture were the enemy, he would never evangelize the pagan people in the Roman Empire if he saw them as enemies. Friends, something has happened in the church where we look at sin—that's normal product of those who live according to the flesh. That's what they're going to do, and then we say they're enemies. I need to remind myself, there but for the grace of God, go I. There but for His grace in my life, that would be me. They're not enemies. It's time for the church to stop treating them as though they are. What did Jesus say? I have not come for the healthy, but I have come for the sick. We know the work of the flesh produces stuff that causes us to cringe. But friends, let me remind you, God's grace, His forgiveness, and the freedom in Christ is still the longing of every human soul. I believe that to be true. There was a time in your sinfulness that the freedom in Christ Jesus, His grace, and His forgiveness, that spoke to your human soul at a very profound place. And that is still the case today. Everybody needs to have an opportunity to accept Christ. So what do we do in the midst of a culture that wants to call us haters and irrelevant and religious hypocrites? What do we do? We do what Jesus did. You know what's funny is sinners actually like Jesus. In his ministry, guess where Jesus was? with sinners he got accused of eating meals with tax collectors and sinners that's where he was did he say oh good job with that sin! way to go no but he was with them because the god in him the son of god and the grace and the compassion and the love had to be in close proximity to those who needed it most and that's where he was We need to be better at being that way in our culture today. And Paul tells us how. He says, and we wrap it up with this, Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit produces this kind of fruit in your lives. And he lists them. Love, joy, peace, patience, and on the list goes. And I don't have time to go deeply into all of these, but let me just tell you that the fruit of the Spirit is the work of the Spirit within you. Okay? The fruit of the Spirit means the Holy Spirit is at work. Let me give you an illustration. Trees don't have to work hard to grow fruit, right? If it is a healthy tree with the normal reproductive system the tree has, it's going to bear fruit. It's just going to happen. And we might prune it and help it as planters, but Trees were made to do that. It happens. Friends, the fruit of the Spirit in our lives should naturally be produced out of us when we are living full of the Holy Spirit. And as followers of Jesus, that's who we are. But I have to work in cooperation, yielding to the Holy Spirit's work in my life and giving up my desires for selfishness. And he lists the fruit. He says the first one is love. In fact, without this, no other fruit will happen. I don't love God and love my neighbor as myself. The rest of this stuff is foolishness. So love. Love as shown by Jesus. What is that? Self-sacrificing, unchanging, unconditional love. And we often confuse love for permission do you know I can still love people who are far from God and not permit what they're doing in that moment? I can just love them. How many of you know as parents, your kid's done something wrong, but you love them through their wrong? That's what we need to be better at, Right? Joy, he says, which is an inner rejoicing that remains despite our outer circumstances. And friends, Christians don't seem very joyful today. And we should be, because the Holy Spirit dwells in us. Peace, that inner quietness and trust in God's sovereignty and His justice, even in the face of adverse circumstances. Friends, we need this Today, it should be a product of Christians that when society's tensions and rising gas prices and all the things that are going on, when those bump into our life, guess what should come out? Peace. Why? Because we serve a God of the universe. And it's not me, and it's not you. And the God who is the God of the universe can figure all this other stuff out. But I need that peace in place of anxiety. The world doesn't need anxious Christians. They need to see peace in our hearts. Patience, putting up with people who continually irritate us. And you'll have plenty of opportunity to practice patience. But it's that endurance. The Bible also uses the term long suffering culture in which we live needs Christians who are going to be patient with people as they recognize their brokenness and see in us something worth giving their lives for. And then kindness, acting charitably, benevolently, warm-hearted toward others. That means we take the initiative in responding to other people's needs. Goodness, reaching out to do good to others even if they don't deserve it. We need to be good people in our world today. Faithfulness means being reliable, steadfast, trustworthy. Gentleness is that sense of humility, being considerate of others. And if I'm going too fast, all of these notes are in the Bible app for you. You can review these later. Self-control a mastery over the human desires. This is where I think we often fail. We want to do right, and then somebody posts something online, and we just got to make an angry response to what they had to say. And there goes our self-control. We have to be people who recognize the fruit of the Spirit is not just, well, I got to get better at this one. No, the fruit will all grow if I am yielded to the work of the Holy Spirit within me. In fact, he says, against all of these fruit, there is no law. If you do what the Holy Spirit does in us by the fruit of the Spirit, you won't need the law. In essence, you will be mirroring perfectly the perfect intent of the law. And the fruit of the Spirit fully and freely on display in your life will be attractive to a watching world. What drew the Roman Empire to the Christian movement? People filled with the Spirit who did good in their communities. Who welcomed people into a process of growing to know Jesus and live more Christ-like and being willing to deal with the bumps and the scrapes and the bruises that come along the way. You see, friends, no one regrets demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit. No one says, oh man, I was good again today. or or fill in the fruit of the Spirit. Nobody does that. But we all have regrets when the works of the flesh take place in our life. In fact, some of your greatest regrets are things that you gave into in the desires of the sinful nature. And those also are at war, I get it. But living Spirit-filled believers will continue to produce the fruit of the Spirit through their life. He wraps it up in Galatians five twenty four with the statement, those who belong to Christ have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to the cross and crucified them there. Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Every part. Not just Sunday between 10.30 and whenever this guy stops talking. But every part. Of my life, my home life, my private life, my work life, my relational life. Holy Spirit, is He involved in every part of your life? The grace of the Father, the freedom in Christ, and the fruit of the Spirit. That's what Paul addressed in chapter 5. That is available to all who believe. What do you need most today at work in your life? Do you need the grace of our Father because you've been living in a life of sin and brokenness and you need to know that God loves you, has a plan for you, and the plan is not to continue to live in the brokenness in which you currently dwell. But He wants to extend grace to you in the place of your sinfulness. Or maybe you need freedom because you're struggling with one side or the other and you can't rest in the freedom of the grace of Christ. Or finally, maybe you're here and you've been living for Jesus for a very long time, but your life has not been very fruitful because you've not yielded to the work of the Spirit, producing the fruit of the Spirit in your life, which, by the way, will naturally happen when we yield. I'd like us to stand and as we pray today, maybe ask the Lord, where are you speaking to me at today in this? The Lord knows your heart, friends. Just be honest with Him in this moment. Maybe you need all three. Maybe you need grace, freedom, and the fruit of the Spirit at work in your life. Then talk to Him about that. Don't treat God as though He's some stranger. Speak to Him about it. So, Father, right now, we just invite you into this very moment. Your Word is truth. The Holy Spirit has come to remind us of truth. And the truth is, we desperately need you and the work of the Spirit within us. So, Father, I ask for your grace upon those today who confess that they need forgiveness. Thank you that your grace is big enough for them. I pray for those who are continuing to drift into legalism or hedonism, who continue to go back and forth because they just can't find that rest and that freedom of living in your grace. May they know today that no matter what they do from this day on, you will never love them more or never love them less. Your love is constant unchanging and may they rest in that truth today for others listening to and relying on and welcoming the work of the spirit within their daily life to be people that the watching world need to see transformed lives by the grace and mercy of the father through christ our lord that's what that's what needs to happen to bring healing into our world today Help us to yield, to follow the promptings of the Spirit, the warning bumps, and to be filled with the fruit of the Spirit. Lord, we commit that to you today, wherever we are, whatever our need is today, work in our lives, transform us, and help us to make a difference in our corner of the world. We go from this place asking your blessing upon our lives, to be quick to obey, and quick to answer. In Jesus' name, amen.